understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Radio 1 listeners, we've missed you guys. How are you? Anything been happening in RTE since our last series? No? No no news? All quiet? Ah, come on now, one. That's a terrible start. (laughs) Welcome to a brand new series of Second Captain Saturday. We're going to be with you every week for the next couple of months, so let's get cracking. Owen McDevitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? We think it's going to be our best one yet this year, folks. We put together an all-star lineup of brilliant guests from all sorts of different fields with different life stories to tell. Last summer alone, we interviewed everyone from world-renowned composers to Hollywood actors to Booker Prize-winning authors with the title going to the writer Kit Duvall. The one theme that unites all our guests is their willingness to subject themselves to a brutal assessment of their sporting lives. I, for one, salute the bravery of anybody willing to step into the arena because, Murph, the competition to become second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person has been fiercely fought over the years. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, on my task each week is to assess our guests' all-time sporting highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles them and their sporting achievements, and then concoct, I mean, that is the word, <laughs> a score out of 100, which we will then rank and rate alongside our seven other guests this year to crown our greatest non-sports person sports person for 2023. As you've mentioned, last year saw Fiona Shaw and Nick Hornby pushed into second and third by Kit Duvall and her javelin throw for oh, the ages. We're now on our seventh series, and previous champions have included Gabby Logan, Dorothy Cross, actor and comedian Ashling B, who earned 78 points for her professional wrestling... <laughs> yes, her professional wrestling phase. They all count. And Malcolm Gladwell, who hit a joint records po- points tally of 88 points. Gladwell's 88-pointer was for holding a Canadian national youth record for the 1,500 metres, and even once beating future Canadian 1,500-metre record holder and world championship runner... Dave Reed. So between that and the wrestling, let's just say there's scope for a variety of skills and abilities in this setup. Racing out of the blocks on week one is a guest we've been trying to get on this show for a long time and we couldn't be more excited about finally sitting down with him today. Irvin Welsh is one of the most iconic writers of recent decades who first exploded onto the scene when his debut novel, let's not forget, Train Spotting, was published 30 years ago this month. Wow. The story of a, yeah, yeah, the story of a bunch of young working class Scots caught up in a drug fueled scene written in barely penetrable local slang may not have screamed mass appeal on paper but the publisher took a chance and the book the Oscar nominated movie that followed as well achieved a level of critical and commercial success presumably beyond Irvin's wildest dreams becoming a massive part of 1990s culture in the process when asked in 2018 how many copies the book had sold in the UK its publishers said, we don't give out sales figures, but I was saying a million 15 years ago. That estimate is now 20 years old. So it, it's been all right. It's, it's, Urban's it's done, done, all, okay. done all right by train spotting. Now, 30 years on from the start of all this, a musical is in the works. That will be hitting the West End next year. And just next month, a documentary about his life called Choose Urban Welsh will premiere at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Oh, and he's a Bose fan who's lived in Dublin and was a regular at Daily Mount Park. Irvin Welsh, Murph, this is going to be fun. Wow. Train spotting, the, the cultural impact of train spotting yeah. is it was such a huge, to a certain extent, it's our age as well, it's such a huge thing. I remember as a teenager in the, in the 1990s when train spotting came out, the book, the movie, 
every the imagery around it all yeah oh, well the imagery is soundtrack such, yeah it's such a, an important part of this I think because I mean I was 14 in 1996 when the movie came out living in rural northeast Galway <laughs> And let's just say there's quite a bit of difference between the life experience I had accumulated by 1996 and the likes of Renton and Sick Boy and the lads. But that didn't stop me from putting... You were a little more sheltered, Murph. A little more sheltered, it's true. That didn't stop me from putting the poster up, though. I had a Jaws poster on my wall, an Alien poster on my wall, an X-Files... Yeah, okay. An X-Files poster on the wall, (laughs) and also Trainspotting. Yeah. And I think I had train spotting as well. I had train spotting at Reservoir Dogs for sure. Yeah, it was, was train spotting. Was it Renton with the arms folded? Renton with the arms folded, uh, drenched in water. Uh, I feel like I wasn't a part of the target audience, but it's an example of just how ubiquitous that poster was. The video of Lust for Life at the time as well. Yeah. Just an incredibly evocative, fast-paced, visceral sound and look to the movie and you didn't have to have even read the book or seen the movie to have been overloaded with the orange type the specific graphic design of Trainspotting at that time it was genuinely ubiquitous it was everywhere and it was you know it was just a huge part of growing up I think in sure, the mid 90s it still resonates Born Slippy one of the tunes in the soundtrack mm. I heard being blared out in the office next door to ours during the week <laughs> like, just a complete coincidence yeah. it's, it's, this is 30 years on it also created some waves although the book was long listed for the Booker Prize it never got the chance to compete for the award after two of the judging panel threatened to walk out if their colleagues put it on the short list mm. in September 1996 Bob Dole I had to go back and I, I vaguely remembered this and going back looking at it he was then the Republican Party's presidential candidate wow. at the time you know he denounced train spotting along with pulp fiction as promoting the romance of heroin now with respect to the late bob dole i've read the book and watched the movie again this week and there are some scenes in there let's just say the word romance is not the first word that comes mm. to mind when i see them so listen our plan for the series is lots of great conversations with amazing people an absolutely nonsensical system for ranking their sporting lives and some banging tunes every week starting today the only way we could with some iggy pop it's good enough to soundtrack Renton's Choose Life speech in Trainspotting. It is good enough to kick us off on the new series of Second Captain Saturday. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Tweet us at Second Captains. Urban Welsh on the way. After Lust for Life. Iggy Pop's lust for life. I'd say the train spotting memories may be coming flooding back to some of you listening today. It's our opening show of the new series of Second Captain Saturday. And what a way to start. On July 6th, 1993, the characters of Mark Renton, Sick Boy, Spud and Begbie were unleashed on an unsuspecting public. 30 years, two blockbuster movies and four follow-up novels later, the cultural impact of train spotting is still being felt and it will soon be getting the full musical treatment on the West End. The big question is, can Irvin Welsh cram as many references to his beloved Hibs into the musical as he did into the book 30 years ago? Irvin, thanks so much for being the opening guest of the new series. Thanks for having me, guys. Reading the book this week, I mean, really, it was just an excuse to put Hibs up in lights, wasn't it? Uh, you don't need an excuse to put hips up in lights. Like, we, we just are. We're just in lights all the time, permanently swathed in emerald green light. <laughs> just watching the movie back this week, though, where did Hibs disappear to in the movie? 
Yeah. I mean, there's a shocking lack of of Hibernian. Uh, there's a little uh, bit. There's, content. A, there's a poster in Renton's room. I don't know. I mean, yeah. if you look at the opening credits, uh, Begbie's wearing a, a hip strip from the sixties. If you look at Renton's room, there's all the posters yeah. of Pat Stanton, and um, you know, so uh, so there are there are quite a few Hibs references in the film. They're there. They're uh, Easter eggs left for the discerning Hibs fan. I love it. Definitely. Listen, what we're going to do by the end of today is get down to the business of ranking your sporting life, Irvin. So for some early points, can you tell us a story that we've heard of your... I think you might be the first ever guest we've had who has been arrested for playing football as a kid. Yes, yeah. I mean, actually, I was talking about this with a couple of my pals that uh, were fellow arrestees when we were kind of (laughs) seven, eight years old. Uh, And uh, we just moved into the scheme, the... the, uh, the big house in the state we moved into from the prefabs, and we were just we were basically just uh, kicking a ball about as we always did, and we were charged by the police and we were taken up to court. Uh, our parents had to take a day off work and all that kind of stuff. That was, um, and we were admonished, but we have a, we actually do have it recorded, so we have a criminal record from seven <laughs> years old Jeez. onwards. We, we continued to play in in the same place. Uh, Kind of for years and years after it, so there was not there was nothing. It just seemed to have been some kind of um, it was probably some diktat from some sort of uh, local police chief who was trying to kind of make a name for himself and all that, and um, by kind of you know some social control measure to kind of to hassle to what to, ra- to round up all the seven year old kids who were playing football. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. To, to, to kind of to keep those schemes in their place, basically. Like okay, you know, yeah, so yeah. I mean, there was absolutely nothing to do in your house other than kick a ball around. So if we couldn't do that, I don't know what they what, what they expected us to do, other than kind of you know. I mean, I think if you if you couldn't play football. You would just be spending your time kind of sort of breaking in houses and sniffing glue because there would be nothing, there was absolutely zero else to do. There was no shops then, there was no library, there was no community centre. So uh, it was, it was a, I kind of feel quite aggrieved about it still. You know, it was a sort of, um, it was a, a terrible kind of exercise in social control, but um, it, and it kind of did set us off in a, in a kind, we had a kind of mentality. I remember us. Um, all kind of swag. My mum saying, "You've got a criminal record. This is terrible." And then you're thinking, "Oh my god!" And then when you get to school, and your mates are all saying, "Oh, you've got a criminal record. You're swagging around like big gangster and all that." Like you know, <laughs> so so it's so it's like a, it does. These things are quite kind of they, without overegging the pudding. It does kind of mark you in some way. What? Well, so can you take us back to your childhood then? Was it football you're into mostly, or were you already into? Did, did you have an artistic you know side uh, brewing there too? Everything was football. It's like, you know, you know, again with the documentary, my mates Colin and Dougie, who have been kind of my mates since I was kind of six, well, probably even earlier because we were pals in the prefab as well. We knew each other from the prefab. So probably since I was about four or five. And um, we were kicking a ball around for the for the cameras. And we, we, it, it kind of dawned on me that how terrible football players we were. Three of us, <laughs> you know? and, I, and I was the worst of the three. Um and um, but the uh, the thing is that all we did was play football. We should have been the best players in the world because that's all we did, basically. You know, um, and if somebody had just kind of taken us aside and coached us properly and showed, you know, sort of just did some repetitive coaching, throwing the ball to us so we could trap it and just learning the rudiment, the rudimentary kind of skills of football, uh, for all the time and effort that we put into the game, we should have, you know, we should have been, you know, we should be massively better than we were. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's that's the way it was. I mean, all I was interested in as a kid 
was football and boxing. And um, you know, go to the boxing club, and again, I, was, I, I wasn't good at boxing. I wasn't particularly kind of skilled. I was better than I was at football, but I wasn't particularly brilliant. Uh, a couple of cousins that kind of who were quite kind of hard guys, and kind of went to the boxing club with them. So they insisted that I went along to the boxing club, which I actually enjoyed. I didn't think I would, but I actually got right into it and enjoyed it. Um, so uh, it gave me that kind of sporty string to my bow. Um, and it was all I was obsessed with, basically. So where was the young aspiring novelist at this point? Was that in there somewhere well, to get out? Yes, it was. I mean, I used to write, uh, I used to kind of, um, I used to be a bit of a dreamy kid as well. I'd write kind of poems to girls in the playground and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And um and I've never seen sport and art as dichotomies. So kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're corralled by our kind of system, our education and social system, and to say, this is a sporty kid, this is an arty kid. And I was always instinctively both, basically. Did trying to combine both of those things ever work against you in any way? Like the All the time, all the time. <laughs> you know, I, would, I would like, um, and you know, I loved kind of doing things, you know, with pals and all that. So I would kind of go to, uh, I would start off going to football, training and then suddenly you know and then I was think well I've, I did this I've done this for the last five weeks I'm getting a bit fed up with it now uh, and so I'm, I'm going to stay in tonight and I'm just going to write some poems or write or write a little sort of or, or paint or, or paint or draw or something like that. I'll do a picture and uh, <clears throat> then I would be horrified that I'd be dropped from the team you know, yeah. and, and, and you know, why, and, coach? Why? And, and even, you know, but, but the thing was that um, it was my uncle Blair that was the sort of uh, the, the the manager of the team. He was the guy. He said, "Look, you know, it's like you, you're the worst player in the team, and I pick you anyway at centre forward but, uh, because you're my nephew." Even I can't play if you don't show up for training. You know what I mean? You can't. You, you're dropped. You know, so this is. And I was just so outraged that um, he could do that to me, that he could drop me from the team. The work-ons are pretty obvious here. <laughs> just show up uh, and be quiet and don't advertise the fact that you're my nephew constantly. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> like he, he was he was kind of really putting himself out there for nepotism, basically. Mm. And uh, it was like, um, I was talking about this to my mate Barra the other day there, and he was saying, like, you were terrible, but you always got picked. You know, because of that player. And it's like, you were keeping really great players at the team. And I say, look, mate, I know all that, but you have to let go of it. It was 50 years ago. Come on. <laughs> did you, on the, on the artistic side of things, did you get much encouragement? Were there outlets for your creativity? Because you go on to write this, this novel, a debut novel, with no traditional narrative, you know, in, in the local vernacular, all these very, uh, very sort of out there things was that was that was that encouraged by teachers by parents when you were young yeah i mean i think it's, my parents were always very encouraging but kind of a bit confused because i think again it's like that thing that you're you either most kids either manifest as, as sporty or arty or if they're both to get the, 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 they're almost forced to make that choice you know and i was quite bloody minded i wouldn't make that choice of kind of i was into both and it's like uh, and my mom and my mom and dad used to be that kind of thing well you know do what you want, but they would get a bit, um, you know, they, they would bit, get, uh, get a bit concerned if I was out running around with my pals in the streets and all that all the time. And then they would get a bit concerned if I was up in my room <laughs> painting and drawing all the time, like, you know, get out with your, play with your mates and all that. It's not, it's not, you should get out. You know? So I'd get out and then it's like, what are you doing? Hanging, hanging around with all these bands. Stay, stay like, out you know, of trouble, used be, yeah, yeah. Used to, be, used to be such a studious kid <laughs> and all that. You know? So you're, you're, you're pulled in these kind of directions. And um, the thing was, it's like, uh, 
I was terrible at school. I just had no discipline or kind of, I couldn't apply myself to anything. And, um, you know, the teachers used to get the same kind of level of despair as my parents. They used to say, you know, you're obviously a bright, intelligent kid, but you've got no interest in anything. You're, 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 you're incredibly disruptive and you're always kind of winding up other kids. To, you know, And I did. I was always creating these kind of, wind up my mates to create all these kind of psychodramas and sort of um, and annoy the teachers, basically, I was a kind of nightmare for the teachers because um, I kind of made the snowballs for other people to fire. But uh, <laughs> to me, that was that was that was interesting part of school. That was where I, I had most of my learning was from all the other kids that were at school. And I think that I mean, when so, I was at so, school, sorry, what do you mean by that? What what you learn from other kids? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, we just learned how, we, we we just basically sort of learned how to. Um, how to play the system and how to wind people up and how to wind each other up and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, and it, you, you learn about, I think you learn about all the dramas of life as a writer, basically. As, as a writer, that's some of the most fertile territory is like kind of uh, childhood, kind of adolescence and early adulthood. That's, that's where you're formed as a writer. And so much of that was to do with school, it was to do with the characters that I met there. And it kind of really makes me, makes me quite sad in a way that the most vibrant and kind of vital people that I've ever known were all these kids that I was at school with. And a lot of them had it knocked out of them, had it, you know, by by life, by commerce, by work, by the, the industrial system, you know, and mm -hmm. um, that's terrible to have your personality kind of eradicated by the system that you live in. You had a go at music, Irvin. You played a bit of guitar. Uh, I try to play guitar like the failed musician route is usually you, you try and sing because you're egotistical and all that you want to be the lead singer and you can't sing a note and then you think well I'll be the guitarist because it's quite flash to, to play guitar and all that I'll be the next Hendrix and stuff like that and I just can't I just my brain doesn't join up I've got no no keyboard or fretboarding skills whatsoever and then you go and then you go and do the bass basically, because you know, there's only four strings and instead of six. Anyone can play a bass, right? Well, that's what they say, you know, <laughs> but it's not true. It's not true. You know, to, to, to play bass at, a requisite, at the requisite level is kind of is a difficult thing to do. And then you become a DJ, you know, because you think, well, I like the bass and I can hear the beat, you know. Now, Andrew Weatherall said to me one time, it's like, um, if you can count to eight, you can DJ. And I can count to eight. So. <laughs> what happened with the... Wasn't there an ad for a band that you, you rang up about when you were a bassist at one point? In one of the record uh, stores there, we used to place, place all these adverts. And um, I saw one with, um, I recognised the phone number. It was a singer slash guitarist in the band. So I phoned the number and uh, he said, like, you know, I said, um, my mate, he's playing the bass right now, but he's, we're getting rid of him. And he realised it was me that um, <laughs> you know, I called him up. So it was a, it was a familiar theme that the, the idea was that you would progress together. And I never progressed. You know, I couldn't make that progress. I could never, when I was bassist, I could never keep time with the drummer. Uh, so I, I couldn't really contribute to the rhythm section. And they used, they used to... If we're playing at gigs at a community centre or whatever, they used to just turn my bass down, basically turn my amplifier down, so that you know it's like uh, <laughs> he's just he's actually just upsetting the drummer now. You know? Well, I was asked in fairness, I was asked by my primary school teacher not to sing, you know, to just mime during yeah, the song. Yes, unbelievably, yeah, yeah. I was as well. Were you? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. We're quite it's the cruel. trio. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's that's what, <clears throat> that's what I was like in bass. So we kind of. Um, 
I would posture and pluck and all that, like I was kind of sort of really sort of holding down the rhythm and all that, you know, when I, I wasn't at all. You, know? you found your niche eventually, it's fair to say, Irvin. It's just gone the 30th anniversary of train spotting. I thought your tweet was really interesting a couple of weeks ago. I maybe should say that it seems like yesterday and where has it all gone? But no, the truth is it feels ages ago, not just a different era, but a different life lived by another person. Can you explain that feeling to us? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, um, um, you know, because of, I've moved, you know, when I was in my teens, I moved to London and then, um, you know, I, I moved back, I moved back up to Edinburgh uh, again, then back down to London and then I, I moved to Amsterdam, uh, then I moved to Dublin um, and then uh, uh, over to Chicago, then to San Francisco, then to Miami. So I felt I've been kind of sort of quite itinerant and you, you meet, you, you get involved in different networks there. So I feel like I've kind of lived uh, a bunch of different lives, really. You feel like a kind of uh, a reinvented self all the time. And I think, you know, I think that's a good thing for a writer, but um, it's a bit kind of strange for a human being because your friends and family say, you know, where have you been? And, you know, what are you doing now? You're back again and all that kind of stuff. So it's... Um, just, I'm trying to settle down, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so what was life then 30 years ago? I'm talking about just before train spotting, you know, as you're working on it. Can you, can you take us back into that era a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there was, was a rebellion against um, against straightness, really. I mean, I was like, uh, I'd kind of I'd been a, a kind of big, heavy kind of drug party guy for years and years. And then I sort of... Um, I cleaned up my act and I was, you know, sort of married to a brilliant woman. I was had a great flat, had a lovely job and everything was, you know, from the outside, I was a, I was quite successful, but I hated my life basically because I wasn't doing anything creative. I was working for the district council. I was kind of contracts kind of stuff, um, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't happy or fulfilled. And uh, I got involved in rave culture and I started DJing. I was very energized and I just wanted to be, um, I wanted to sort of um, to express myself creatively, and uh, it was like it felt a bit like writing Trainspot and kind of um, felt a bit like the Last Chance Saloon because I'd failed so much in music that um, I turned my hand to writing to see if it would work out, you know. And it actually did. It was the results were quite instant, really. So it made me think that I should have been doing that ages ago. A book about a bunch of heroin addicts up in Scotland written in local, very local dialect uh, for, on the face of that could be quite impenetrable to the wider world. Writing it, what were your ambitions for the book? Uh, they were very, very slight. I mean, I thought it would get a bit of a cult following locally because, um, as you say, I mean, it was impenetrable to me as well <laughs> because you, you're not used to seeing words on a page like that. Nobody, so I was thinking, like, nobody's going to read this. They're not going to... You have to kind of... Um, you have to just kind of get into the rhythm of it and say it to yourself for the first kind of 10, 20 pages or so. And then you get... Then you people get it, basically. But it's the same for people in Scotland. It's just that, that visual recognition of words on a page. You're just not used to seeing them in that way. So I didn't think people would persevere with it. But, uh, you know, thankfully they did and they you know, have been doing all these years, basically. Yeah, and... I found it really interesting to discover this week that you wrote it in standard English to start with. So what changed your mind? What what uh, made it you just decide? Seemed, it just seemed absolute shite in standard English. There was nothing <laughs> happening. There was no, um, as you guys know, there's a sort of, um, there's, there's a Celtic, the Celtic tradition of storytelling is very oral. 
And uh, I wanted to approximate that and get that kind of funk and those kind of beats to it. You know, it's very performative. Whereas standard English is a very kind of imperialistic weights and measures kind of controlling kind of um, sort of uh, linguistic construct. So it wasn't in the spirit of the characters. It wasn't anything to do with the characters, really. So I thought, get back and uh, start, write uh, not just dialogue, but also narrative as to how the characters would experience life or how, I, you know, how kind of I was experiencing life, basically. Yeah, just that point about it re- reflecting your own life. The depiction in the book of the hold that heroin takes over the lives of the characters, the dark humour involved, the absolute horror of trying to get off the stuff as, as depicted in Renton's bedroom. Like, is, is that all taken more or less directly from your own experiences? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, I think, you know, you kind of... Uh... The funny thing about all this is it, it, it tends to be quite retrospective because when you're actually in it at the time, you don't really see it in that way. You know, you kind of just see it as like, as a kind of imperative, like, you know, I've got to get some gear, I've got to see so-and-so and such and such, and you're kind of very focused on that kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, I, I got to that point where I, I sort of, I saw, I found some old diaries that I compulsively kept and I was reading them. And uh, I thought to myself, what was I thinking about? How did I, how did I get involved in this? Like, you know, and I was, that was what I was trying to, to work out really in train spotting and, and kind of Skag Boys as well before that. I yeah. thought, what was going on to make not just me, but all the, the other people that I knew get involved in all that? Well, 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 and, but uh, you say at the time you're, you're in it and you're just thinking of what's happening then. But at the same time, you did say you're writing, di- keeping diaries as well. I'm interested in that. So is that, is that your creative brain thinking this? I can I, so. I, I can yeah. document this story somehow at some point. I think that there's always a sort of um, you know, I, I know a lot of people will, will say this as a sort of kind of retrospective self justification, but <laughs> to me it was I always felt that um, this was like a mad adventure. Particularly this one other guy that was a really close pal. It was like a folly ado. We would kind of dare each other to sort of uh, to 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 do everything. I mean, you know, if one if one guy drank ten pints, the other guy would have to drink 12, 12 pints or something like that. You know, it went on. You know, we had this kind of thing going on, and um, we were competitive about everything, but very close, uh, and we we're always egging each other on to to sort of more mischief. So it was a kind of folly ado thing. I don't think either of us would have been junkies if it hadn't been for the other one. And we were actually scared of each other for a while. We kind of, we, we sort of kept it, we kept, even though we were both um, kind of sort of married and settled down and away from, you know, that kind of life, we, we didn't like to meet up because we, we recognised the, the mad energy that we had between us that sparked off into, mm. into kind of um, craziness. And we, we, we got past it. We kind of, you know, we, we sort of, um, became pals again, basically. But uh, it took a long, long time to, before we trusted um, ourselves with each other. And I wanted to capture that kind of, I think that that, that was really the rent and sick boy dynamic, you know, that uh, I wanted to capture that. Uh, and, you know, because it was, it was a contrast between so many other people who were kind of, um, a lot of people uh, in the, the rehab groups that I went to were self-medicating in some way. They were self-medicating for some kind of trauma um, some kind of post-traumatic stress thing. Maybe they'd been abused as kids, or they'd been, um, or they were in an abusive relationship, or they were suffering from kind of some anxiety or depression issue that hadn't been kind of treated. And the the, the heroin was a kind of manifestation of that. The heroin use was a manifestation of that. Whereas uh, you know, or just lack of opportunity, or lack of education, and kind of existential kind of dread, and all that. 
Um, whereas I was never sort of, um, I, I never had any of these issues. So there wasn't a lot that was keeping me there, basically, other than my own kind of bloody mindedness. Like, you know, and I, I really firmly believe that um, you have to, you know, anybody can become an addict, but you have to have really compelling reasons to stay one. You know, I think you can, you know, to, to, to be in, involved in something that's, um, so destructive to your own health and social life, you have to have a good reason to stay there. And usually it's post-traumatic stress. Um, and just basically fanning around like, like I was doing isn't a good enough reason to stay there after a, a long period of time. How much of what you wrote in the diaries made it, uh, you know, word unchanged into stuff that you wrote later in your life? Quite a bit, actually, because a lot of the stuff in the diaries was basically, you know, you, you get into everything, everything about that kind of life is a huge attempt at self-justification. And that's really what I was doing. I was kind of trying to to exonerate and boost myself up and put other people down and all that. And I thought there's a, quite a lot of caustic wit that quite that quite amused me. And I thought this is the ba- these are the basis of characters, this kind of stuff and this sort of rapport between them and this competitiveness and this slagging culture basically is uh, is going to form the basis of 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 this book. So there was a lot that made it intact. But again, as a as a writer, you're always asking the if you're a novelist, you're always asking the what if question. Um, you're kind of um, you're asking like, what if this character was a bit different? What if they were like older, or what if they were younger? What if they were kind? You know, so you so you're you're constantly sort of um, what if this took place in somewhere else rather than in you know in somebody's living room? What if it took place in somebody's garden shed? Or you know, so you're constantly trying to um, to intrigue yourself a bit more and embellish and add on to real life, basically. Roger Ebert, the film critic, has a quote about films being machines for generating empathy. Is that the same with, with being a novelist? Was that the challenge, like that you're trying to create empathy for these characters who are, you know, doing some pretty bad things to feed uh, a habit that is widely reviled in society? Well, I always think that um, people will kind of put, you know, they'll, they'll watch or they'll read or they'll listen to kind of anything. But they'll, they'll witness any kind of bad behaviour or any kind of depravity as long as they sense that the the person stumbling around in the darkness is kind of trying to hit the light switch, mm. you know, they're looking for the light switch and looking for a kind of way out of it. People will sit with them if if they do that, and if it's if it's um, alleviated by humour a little bit, if it's mm. alleviated by humour a little bit, so they'll they'll, um, they'll stick with them if these things are are going on. Uh, I saw the this uh, the play in London that's been really popular now, A Little Life. Um, and it's just non-stop misery. It's like you know, people are just mm. heaping misery on, onto them. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any kind of wet verve humor or redemption in it. And it's it's not you know, it's like I just feel that I spent three and a bit hours of my life that I'm never going to get back, and it's just crap, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, and I couldn't really, you know, when the when the when the guy gets hit by a truck or is narrating how he gets hit by a truck and the, at the end of it, I just started laughing. You know, I thought this is just like it's just over the top. It felt it, it reminded me of um, the Smiths kind of "There Is a Light That Never Goes Out" song. You know, and I just thought I can't really take this this seriously anymore. You know, so I was just laughing basically, and she was laughing as well. But everybody was looking at us as if we were some kind of as if we were quite freaky. Everybody was taking it really, really seriously, and I think it's like um, 
indicative of the times that we live in. There's, there's uh, people want to, they, they, they kind of feel that they're suffering or that they're in pain and they want some kind of testimony to that. That's what the play provides in a way. It provides a testimony to all the kind of um, the psychic horrors that people have just living in this, this world, basically. Mm. Oh, hold on a second, um, though. Everyone, I'm, lo- I'm looking at a piece you did with The Guardian recently about the new musical that's coming out and you're saying there's new characters in there and to be honest, it's quite a lot darker than the book or the film. Yeah, I mean, it is darker in terms of storytelling, but it's also fun as well. There's uh, there's some great new songs in it. There's some great kind of singing and dancing routines and there's... Um, it's uh, there's a lot more humour in it as well, you know. So I mean, I kind of you, know, I don't want people just to be come come away feeling completely miserable or having their own sense of misery vindicated. I feel that um, you've got to challenge people's misery as well. You got to you got to use humour and you got to use a kind of um, a sort of um, an upbeat pulse of humanity to kind of to give people that. Um, encouragement that you know that, that we're we're not just one thing you know we're all different things and we go through all different moods and all different phases and that's what being human is really. Is the idea of changing train spotting and as you say you you have made changes to the structure of it for the musical is that in ways the attraction for you now rather than kind of taking a victory lap uh, on the West End? Oh yeah, I mean I'm not interested in so. I mean, why why would you be interested in doing the same thing? You know mm. what I mean? It's like kind of, uh, to me, it's like I, I love um, I love people adapting my stuff for stage and for screen, and I love adapting it myself. And to me, the you're challenge not precious is about it, it at all. You're not- no, the challenge is to me. You know, it's you know, the book is still there. It's not changing. Nobody's messing around with the book, or nobody's messing around with the film and all that. You know, the film's printed. It's there. The book's printed. It's there. Uh, if somebody comes along and does a different production for of a stage play or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm delighted because I don't want us to keep seeing the same thing over and over again or working on the same thing over and over again. I want to see what you can do with it. You know, it's like, uh, it's you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that stories can be told differently or can be improved and uh, or augmented or, t- you know, or g- given a whole different spirit or different emphasis. And I think that's fabulous. I think it's, it's like it's not something that... Um, I'm not kind of... Um, I'd rather somebody did something that I didn't actually like Rather than they did a supposedly kind of what people call a faithful reproduction mm. of it, I mean that would bore that would just bore me. You know, I mean I'd rather be annoyed than bored. Criticism of the book is you know was well documented at the time. Uh, Bob Dole in particular promoting talking about promoting the romance of heroin and this kind of stuff. Two of the Booker Prize judges threatened to walk out of uh, walk out of their colleagues' place. The book on the short list. How much did that help? And can I also ask how actively did you encourage the hostility? Because there are reports that you yourself would be sending letters to the outrage letters to the Scotsman under different pseudonyms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, um, I didn't actually do that in relation to the books. and uh, But yeah, I mean, I think all that stuff helps. Like, you know, I mean, it does. It's like, uh, I mean, I kind of, um, you know, from where I was sitting, like if, I, if I'd have won the Booker Prize that year, it'd probably been the worst thing that could have happened to me because I would have just been sort of... Um, Another writer that was in this literary establishment and was getting, you know, that got asked to write pieces for the New Yorker and all that kind of stuff. But because of, um, because I was kind of uh, so ostentatiously rejected by the literary establishment, I was kind of painted perennially as this literary bad boy, basically, which was kind of fabulous cachet for me. And it kind of was much more congruous with the audience that I'd kind of picked up, basically. Um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so it, it was a fabulous thing for me to have that that rejection from the Booker crowd. 
Uh, and the Bob Dole thing was was brilliant as well because he he kind of basically he was my my, my PR in America. <laughs> you know, nobody, no, nobody nobody knew who I was, like you know. And then I was actually heartbroken. He died a couple of years ago, and um, and I was actually quite heartbroken because he was he was one of the real unsung heroes of the the whole marketing campaign. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know he did he, he kind of broke me in America. So for, so thank you, Bob. Yeah, you're listening to Train Spotting author Irvin Welsh here on Second Captain Saturday. After the break, Irvin, we're going to be delving deeper into your athletic credentials as Irvin vies to become our greatest non sports person, sports person of 2023. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. Welcome back to Second Captain Saturday. Owner Murph here with our first guest of the summer, the brilliant author of Train Spotting, Irvin Welsh. It is time to focus on our greatest non-sports person, sports person title race now, Irvin. We've heard you've got a background in boxing, you've played football for a lot of your life, and more impressively, you were arrested as a boy for playing the game you love. That's a first for us on the show. We're going to come to your sporting highlight very shortly, but I want to know what role you saw football playing in Train Spotting exactly. It seems to me to be one of the few sort of touchstones for these characters outside taking drugs and outside of the pub where just somewhere where they can feel like they're part of a community. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I, like, I've got to, to come clear and say that I kind of hate football now as an industry. I can't, you know, I can't stand it. I can't, what, you know, it's like, uh, it's basically stolen from uh, working class people. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But when it gets it right, when the community get involved, I mean, like, um, I mean, Hibs winning the cup in 2016. That was like um, that was the whole the whole community, the whole of kind of Ed- working class Edinburgh, particularly North Edinburgh, South kind of South Side Edinburgh. It just it just went nuts, you know. It went nuts right through the whole summer. They won it for the first um, time in in more than 100 years, wasn't it? 113 years, and it was like uh, 119 years, maybe I think. But uh, it was like that. I know that if Hibs won the Champions League for the next. Um, 10 Champions Leagues in a row, it would never match that euphoria of that day, of that kind of occasion. You talked, Irvin, about the different places you've been, the different places you've lived in over the years, including Dublin. Has football helped? I know you're you're a daily man regular, so has football kind of helped, for example, when you were living here to to fit into a community? Definitely. I mean, it's, it's like, why would you not? I mean, you go to, you go to a, a city, a, a strange city, and you, if you take an interest in a local football club, uh, or one of the local football clubs, you're instantly plumbed into a whole network, of, um, and you and you understand the city a lot more. You know what I mean? It's like I can, that's why I can, I can never understand people um, from Dublin jumping on the ferry to Manchester and Liverpool when you you know you, when you've got kind of boats and rovers and all that on your doorstep. Basically, um, it's uh, it's just such a, a brilliant experience. You know, it's like uh, so. I've always, I mean, I've kind of when I lived in Amsterdam. I got a season ticket for Demir, uh, which was Ajax's old ground before the Amsterdam Arena, and I just made some great friends through through doing that through going to these games. And uh, I mean, West Ham, I've kind of, uh, I kind of, I've had a season ticket at West Ham for years, and I, I started, I got adopted by a bunch of West Ham fans when I first moved down to London, and it was just great. You know, it was just you had a a whole community 
kind of he understood the place basically what, what do you mean know? by you understood the place how, how do you feel you understood dublin any better by going to daily man for example well it's like you know you, you kind of talk but what you, what you do is you, you you talk to people you go you go to the pubs in the north side and you kind of um and you know people people are just in the know about places to go you know they'll say ah oh, this is a there's a gig coming up here you know sort of you should go here there's some you know something at the button factory has happened this band are playing this really cool local band um it's a great restaurant. There's this new tapas place that's opened up and such. So you, you get all this information through all these, you know, through for all these people and through all these networks. And it's you know, it's, it's much broader than just the football. It's properly kind of embedding yourself in a community. And the football is the means by which you do that. You know, uh, it's like sometimes it's you know, you know, the, the game and you know, the actual game is neither here nor there. A game of football is either interesting or it's crap. You know, basically, and that happens right across the board. Uh, so it's a bit, it's it's what you get from being part of that community. We're coming to the crunch here. Where we have to start rating your sporting life, Irvin. So for a couple of things we need to get clear. First of all, what, what's your own physical fitness regimen these days? Are you staying active? Yeah, I do. I still do boxing. Um, I don't spar now because you know it's not a good idea as, as, as a writer to get hit in the head, and you do more as you get older because you're you know you. Your punch stays the same. Your speed is kind of so actually does hold up, but reaction time, you know, to so is it goes right down. So it's not a it's not a good thing to do. But I still do it to keep fit. Um, I don't run anymore. I used to run. I used to run marathons, and it's just hard on the knees. So uh, I still I do high intensity interval training to keep to keep oh, yeah. my weight down, and I do. Um, uh, I, I kind of, I, you know, I go to the gym. I do weights, but not not big weights, just kind of repetitive small weights to keep kind of. Hang on, this um, is impressive stuff. We're talking high, high intensity going. workouts, weight training. This is this is good going. Pilates? Did I hear you do Pilates? I used to do Pilates all the time. I love it. It's fabulous. So, so Pilates in Miami, I would recommend to anybody. Um, and uh, Pilates, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get more into yoga. Get a bit more mobile, um, a bit more flexible. So I'm going to try and do that. Yeah. So you know, I, I do try to, to keep kind of relatively fit. What about your own sporting achievements then? And uh, none. Uh, no, there has none. to be one. There has none. to be one. It's one of our rules here that you have to pick one highlight from your own playing, your own sporting career. I'm afraid can be as awful and ridiculous <sighs> as you wish. They're all awful and ridiculous. I mean, it's like uh, the, the the horrible thing about it is it's been. Um, this documentary that comes out next year, my mates Colin and Dougie and I were having a we're having a kick about. It's probably the first time I've had a kick about for about fifty years, basically. And uh, it was like uh, it was like Colin was the only one that one of us that looked semi kind of acceptable, and he he just pulled a muscle straight away after about five <laughs> minutes. He was that was him done, you know. It's got sort of. Um, and uh, it was an exercise in humiliation, really. I hope they've edited it skillfully to make us look semi, <laughs> semi decent, like you know. But um, it was like uh, I had this big blister on my toe as well, like you know, so I could I could barely kick the ball anyway, like you know. So it just it was like a, it wasn't a great experience. Like, so I was having to try and kick my left foot for a lot of the time, which was kind of even even worse. So uh, and that'll be recorded. So that was quite a, a recent one. I mean, okay. I kind of um. I do remember scoring a goal once at the school. It was like a headed goal, and I got punched in the face by the goalkeeper at the same time. He went to punch the ball, and I got my head in there first and kind of took the took his fist on my face. And I remember kind of just um, falling to the turf and watching the ball bounce slowly towards the net. Like, you know, 
and uh, and it did go and over the line now just to be clear it, this did, wasn't a goal. Yeah, okay. it did it was a goal you know and everybody was everybody was kind of cheering and laughing at the same time like you know that was, <laughs> I was spangled out on the, the, the pitch physical bravery to get that one over the line listen Irvin it's time stupidity to... stupidity, <laughs> stupidity possibly as well it's, it is time to set a benchmark for the rest of this series so Murph can you please rank this sporting life of Irvin Welsh you don't understand I could have had class don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Irvin, for the first time this season, it falls to me to assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you can set a daunting clubhouse lead for this season and become our top non-sports person sports person for 2023. Getting arrested for playing football while still technically a baby is a thrilling opening gambit, there's no doubt about it. And your dedication to Hibs even stretched to insisting on leaving Hibs-ish clues all over major Hollywood motion pictures, even though I missed most of them apparently. Your all-time sporting highlight and the sports person you most remind me of are inextricably linked, of course. Your heroics in heading in a goal while getting punched in the face in a school's game is not just a cheap metaphor for life, it also foreshadows quite beautifully the football stylings of Frank Soze, your favourite ever Hibs player and a man whose bravery and dedication to the cause could never be questioned, much like yourself. Now, I'm going to deduct some points for your Pilates habit, Irvin. Uh, I'm sorry, I, do, I actually do Pilates myself. I know it's just stretching or atheist yoga, as a friend of mine described it. But uh, <laughs> but it's still all good enough for a very solid, very creditable, very Hibsish score of 75 points, which bears all the hallmarks of a sturdy top five finish. Is that out of a thousand now? No, out of 100. Not oh. as good Not as good as Richard Ford's 84 points, but far, far superior to Kevin Barry's 73 points. Irvin Welsh, this Honestly, has been Kevin your sporting... 73. Kevin yeah. only got 73. He's a truly yeah. terrible pool player, and that was literally his highlight. Ah, right, Brian. So, Irvin Welsh, this has been your sporting... Irvin, life. listen, you've been brilliant today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. A round of applause, please, for Irvin Welsh. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Just like our opening tune today, our second song comes from the era-defining train spotting soundtrack. That is New Order and Temptation. I've got to say, I'm intrigued by this train spotting musical in the pipeline. Darker than the book and the movie, but with song and dance numbers. Could be, could be an intriguing watch. Well, listen, I mean, Rogers Hammerstein, it, it may not be you, but I, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'll still buy my ticket. Big thanks to Irvin Welsh today. I feel his mark of 75 points 
will be overhauled by the end of the series, but he is our front runner for now. Mm. You were polite enough not to remind him that his long-standing status as Hib's biggest celebrity fan has come to an end, <laughs> thanks to Logan Roy, the tyrannical billionaire media mogul portrayed in the hit TV show Succession, even if Logan's obsequious son Roman was a little confused about his father's loyalties. I got you a present. We actually got you a present. We bought the hearts. Logan, happy anniversary. Hearts? I remember mm-hmm. my first day working for you. Hearts Football Club? Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Because it's the hearts. It's your team. I'm Hibs. You're Hibs? Oh. Really? Oh. Are you sure? I thought you were hearts. I'm pretty sure, Dad. You know, maybe you're right. How would I know what team I supported all my f***ing life? I mean, maybe I support. Come on! I thought you were hearts. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> is it is it terrible? Like, is it terrible for all his fans now? For any time they're mentioned, for that to be like immediately the first thing that people think. Uh, that's what happens. Listen, it's a legacy. You know, it's a legacy. I mean, it might not be the legacy you want, but it's a legacy. Brilliant stuff from Irvin to start the new series. We're with you every week for the next couple of months, and we've got some massive guests coming up in the next few weeks. This has been a Second Captains production for RTE. The show is produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for Saturday Sport. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. It's good to be back. We'll see you next week.